Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor, and Pastor Charles Roberts. I'm here today again with my co-host, Charles Roberts, and we're going to examine how we use certain words and what we mean or don't mean when we use them. Now, you cannot be around most church circles these days and not hear the expression that Jesus wants to be your personal savior. How much thought goes into saying yes or no to this? And what does the expression even mean? For example, I don't have a personal relationship with the current president of the United States, whether I'm for him or against him. I do have a personal relationship with my neighbors, as I know their names and they know mine, and we help each other out when needed. So relationships, all relationships, are based on rules. And while we might have different rules for different relationships, for example, there's there are different rules in my marriage. There were different rules when I had young children in my home. There are different rules when people are out in the workplace. We understand that. But is it true with our relationship to God? Does God have a personal relationship with us that's different from every other person's relationship with him? So the question we're posing today to get behind is this. Is salvation all that personal? Now, Charles, since you suggested this topic, I'll let you start. The straight-up answer to that question is uh, yes and no. (laughs) And this topic uh, became apparent to me as I was preparing the sermon that, by the Lord's good mercy, I was able to share with our congregation on Easter Sunday. And it has to do with this whole issue. Okay, the resurrection is something that we celebrate, we commemorate, we appreciate every every day, every Lord's Day, not just so-called Easter Sunday. But the whole issue there, uh, the resurrection of Jesus, how does that impact daily life? And I think the default position, at least it has been for a long, long time, of those of us here in these United States, is how does it affect me? So the starting point, the default position is me, myself, and I, the individual. Uh, And this phrase, my personal savior, you know, is an example of that very thing. And that's not to say that there's not a personal aspect to our salvation. But let's say you mentioned when you had children in your home. Yes, if you are born into a family with brothers and sisters, or even if you're an only child, you are an individual in that family, but you're not the only person. And there's a sense in which somehow the idea, Rush Dooney called it, atomism. He wasn't the only one to use that term, but atomistic as in focused on one thing, the individual. Uh, This sort of became inbred in our American culture in a certain time frame. And the idea, say, of uh, I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I'm going to go out and make my way into the world. You know, I can do it myself. I did it my way, Frank Sinatra and all that sort of thing. Right. And that that bleeds over into our thinking about salvation. However, one of the preeminent texts, in my mind at least, that sort of refutes this way of thinking is in Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul, referring to Christ, says, 
This is 22 and 23. And he, Christ, put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head of all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the context of the work of Jesus is within the context of a broader community of people. And the foundation of God's working with humanity was in the context of a family. So God doesn't come to us just as individuals. He comes to us as a community. Right. Now, you pointed out in our pre-discussion that this idea has roots in an ancient heresy. What is that ancient heresy? Well, and this is where, if our listeners will bear with us, there are several streams that feed into this discussion, and what you have just brought up is one of them. There was an early heresiarch, an early teacher of the so-called Christian faith by the, the name of Pelagius, and he began to teach that the sin of Adam is not something that extends to his natural descendants. Uh, all those proceeding from him by natural generation, as the Westminster Catechism puts it. But rather, Adam is guilty of his own sin. We aren't guilty of it. And so we have an aspect of perfectionism or to be perfected within ourselves. We have the ability to choose the good apart from any working of God's grace. And so you can see it sort of lays the foundation for the later Arminian free will teaching and belief. And obviously, if the whole issue of my becoming in covenant with Almighty God is my decision, then that immediately tends to an atomistic or individualistic attitude. I first heard this expression or this example of it from R.C. Sproul. He wasn't the only one who said it, but it's sort of the idea, God votes for me, Satan votes against me, I have to cast a deciding vote. Which plays into, and you know, you use the term Arminianism, that it's not foreordained by God Almighty who are his people. That uh, I've heard it said, and I cringe when I hear it, God is a gentleman. He will not force himself upon you. So right then, if you take that image, he's being compared to someone other than a rapist or someone who takes advantage of someone else. And why I think that's so detrimental is that the Bible gives us the image of Christ and his church as a marital relationship. The church is the bride. And so by putting it in terms of Jesus isn't going to force himself on you, we now have this view that says, ultimately, my salvation is in my hands, as opposed to the Holy Spirit comes upon me because God willed it that way, and I have no ability to do anything else but respond. Exactly. And this is another example of how the, uh, the individualistic attitude has worked its way into at least American evangelical Protestantism. Uh, even in the 19th century, there were evidences of it. And this is what fed into the preaching and teaching of another great heretic, Charles Finney. The man who originated the, well, he didn't originate it. Actually, I think it was the early Methodist preachers who originated the, the anxious bench, the altar call. Uh, you raise your hand. You come forward. You accept Christ as, yep, there we go, your personal Savior. I mentioned to my congregation a few weeks ago when I uh, shared the message on which this idea comes from. It's like, you know, we got our personal cell phone. We got our personal car. We got our personal YouTube channel or whatever. And, yes, we have our personal Savior. 
you know, it, and, it and all, different plans. You know, you might have the all encompassing <laughs> plan and I might have the bare bones plan. Yeah. And that that also is part of the part and parcel of the Arminian understanding, the Pelagian understanding. You know, some people think that one of the arch foundations of Calvinism is the belief, as it's called in some independent type churches, once saved, always saved. Well, the teaching of scripture is the perseverance of the saints, which is not the same thing. Because if you have an idea of once saved, always saved, well, you can point back to a point where you went forward at an altar call at a fundamentalist church when you were 15 years old. And well, yeah, that's where I got saved. And I'm always saved because I made that decision. I did this. I'm on the plan where I pretty much live for the devil most of the time. But then, you know, after it gets boring or I can't do it anymore, then I'll start being serious about my faith. That's my plan. Yeah. And maybe it's a matter of economics. You know, I don't want to have to give up my subscriptions to things that may not be very good. So I'll hear people say, okay, so you're just more dedicated. You know, I wish I could be more like you, but isn't it great how God accepts us each as we are, which is another expression you won't find in scripture. Yeah. And another, um, another place that this whole discussion feeds into that is part and parcel of the landscape of modern evangelicalism and even non-modern. I mean, it goes back many years is the, uh, the influence of dispensational teaching, which bought into this sort of thing early on. I remember many, many years ago now, not long after my wife and I were first married, we were living in an apartment house, and we were very delighted to find across the hall from us was another Christian couple. Now, they were of a, a somewhat different theological bent than we were, and I was still learning about Reformed theology. I had just barely heard of Dr. Rushduni and an, an uncomplimentary article about him in Christianity Today magazine. And I was having discussion with the um, husband of this of the t- of the couple, and he was a seminary graduate. I had not yet been to seminary at that point. We got to talk about this issue of law and obedience, and he said, "Well, you know, as a Christian, you don't have to obey the Ten Commandments. You know, you're saved by grace, and it's the love of God that you have. You you, you just have to love Jesus." And I've never forgotten that conversation. At the time, I didn't know quite what to make of it. I I, I sort of had an impulse. I wanted to do a cartwheel, you know. <laughs> Hey, I don't have to obey the law, you know. Um, but then I learned better that this was based on a type of theology that not only blends parts of Pelagius's teachings, but here, here again is where the stream, the stream runs deep uh, into this discussion. Another heretic from the early church was Marcion, and he taught that the, the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, is this evil, mean guy who wants you to obey every jot and tittle of the law. But then the God of Jesus was a different God, a God of love and peace, and we might say today unicorns and rainbows. Mm-hmm. And so all you have to do is have him as your personal savior and feel good about yourself and do the best you can. God loves unconditionally and all the rest of it. Marcion was the one who popularized the idea that there are two different plans in the Bible. One deals with the Jews who have no connection whatsoever to anything dealing with Jesus or the Newer Testament, the New Covenant, and the other is Jesus who mounts this whole new religion. And so because of that, Marcion came up with his own version of the Bible, in which he basically chopped out everything except the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts and maybe the Book of Psalms. And that was it. Let's look at this for a second. In every other relationship or exchange we have in life, we don't proceed with an agreement until we know the terms of that agreement. 
So when you buy a house or you enter into a business relationship or you're going to buy a car, there's lots of paperwork which says what each party in the transaction is promising to do. And for some reason, people don't translate that to our relationship with God. So you could say in the areas of getting a loan, buying a house, these are contracts or covenants. But the modern thinking isn't to read the fine print. Now, two passages of scripture like scream out to me on this, the ending of the book of Ecclesiastes, what is the whole duty to fear God and keep his commandments? So before anybody would venture into this covenantal agreement, you would think they would want to understand what the terms of the agreement are. But we don't do that anymore. We just assume that, hi, I'm Andrea, you're Jesus. We're now friends, whatever we are, but we haven't really looked at the essence of what does God require of the oh man, right? So what's missing in that formula are the requirements. And it's not just to feel bad for bad things you've done and maybe still are doing. And there are requirements because we are not isolated individuals, even though we may try to be. I've often joked that Sometimes I get so frustrated with the crowds that we have to endure in various places that I wish I was like Elvis. You know, Elvis would go in and run an entire movie theater, so he'd be the only one in there. <laughs> uh, that's a very sad, solitary life, and we see where it eventually led him, at least some aspect of that. But the fact is, there have to be requirements and rules and regulations because we are born into communal settings. You know, when the Lord spoke to Abraham, when Yahweh spoke to Abraham and said, I'm going to make my covenant with you, he didn't stop there. And some people might point to that and will say, wait a minute, Abraham was an individual. But no, he said, I will be your God and the God of your children after you. So there's a communal family aspect to this. And, of course, as the ministry of Chalcedon has never stopped reminding people because its founder never stopped reminding people because Holy Scripture itself never stops pointing out that the foundation of God's work in the world in terms of the, the layout is the family. This was the operation and unit that got established at creation. That requires that we have rules and regulations on how we conduct ourselves. We're not born isolated individuals. We're born into a family circumstance. It's just the same thing in terms of being born into God's covenant family. We're not born as isolated individuals. We're born within the context of a Christian family and or a Christian church. And if you go back to Abraham and the covenant God cut with Abraham, it's really important to understand this cutting of uh, uh, the covenant because this covenant was not two equal parties entering into agreement. This was God, the superior party, and Abraham and his descendants, the inferior in sense that they were under. And if you remember the account where Abraham puts animals on the altar and then a fire goes through and, and, you know, demolishes it. In other words, this covenant has terms of life and death. And yet, not only do we rarely hear people present the covenant that you enter into a covenant with God and then you fail to live up to it, there are going to be consequences and sometimes greater for those who have professed but then don't live up to their profession. 
that passage that I uh, referred to earlier from Ephesians, Paul not only mentions the fact that God gave Jesus all this authority to put everything under his feet, to be the head of all things, the church, which is his body, etc. But he also refers in that same section that we are saved, we are brought into this covenant so that we can turn away, and the phrase he uses, from the course of this world, from the worldview, from the principles of this world, and we are to follow and pursue good works that the Lord prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So at every turn, our our gospel kingdom-driven faith is awash in the idea of action, of obedience, of not just simply believing something and having a good feeling, but absolutely believing truths that have a direct impact. They, They go together. The Westminster Confession of Faith obviously speaks against the idea that good works save anybody, but it points out very clearly that where there is true regeneration and salvation, good works without fail follow that change in a person's life. And the word good is defined clearly as the standards of God's law. Right. And, you know, I was thinking a lot about, is there an account in the New Testament that would sort of make the point we're trying to get at today? And it just actually came out of a surprise area where I had never viewed it this way. But if you remember the account at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus has risen from the dead. This is prior to his ascension. And he's already met with them, it says twice. And then there's this third time. Peter and the boys are out fishing and they don't have a very successful catch. Nothing comes into their net. And so there's this person yelling at them from the shore saying, have you caught anything? And they say no. And he says, put the nets to the other side. Of course, they get this big load of fish. The nets don't break. Peter realizes who it is, gets dressed, jumps into the water, and goes and meets Jesus. And so now they're all sitting down for breakfast. Now, Peter, definitely prior to this, has had what we would call a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. For three years, he had this relationship. And then he stumbles, he falls, he surprises himself that his macho doesn't turn out to be so macho and that he's denied Christ in the midst of wondering what people will think of him. So he's sitting there and Jesus looks at him and says, do you love me? And Peter says three times, yes, you know, I love you. So Peter is asserting his personal relationship with Jesus. And what's Jesus' response? Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. In other words, it's not just about you, Peter. Okay, you have been prepared to do the work that I've called you to do. And then he even prophesies that Peter's going to go through some troubles as he pursues the the call to feed the Lord's sheep. So it's not just a personal relationship. Jesus could have said, well, okay, I know, you know what, everybody slips up, but he gave him a mission. And then when you look at the Great Commission, you see it's the same mission. Exactly. And in that same chapter that you're referring to, he exhorts him. And, and as it goes forward, he's talking about John, the apostle, and Jesus having some things to say about his future. And uh, Peter says, uh, 
what about this man, Lord, in, in chapter 21, verse 21? And Jesus says, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Right. And so there's this immediate exhortation that he has a responsibility, and it includes a certain type of action. And that action is not to go off in a corner and contemplate some you know, mystical thing or other. It's to be actively involved with the ministry and life of the church. So this sort of begs the question, when is a person saved? Is a person saved when he or she is aware of the fact that they're saved or were they saved prior? And so if we take a look at the overall outside of time scheme that the Bible presents, we know that God determined all things before the foundation of the world. Nothing is out of his control. So if I was converted, which I was at the age of 28, that doesn't deny the fact that all those years before that, I was part of God's elect, but I didn't become aware of it until a point in time where I received the gift of faith, which caused me to repent of my sins and change the way I lived. So that's the overall scheme. Well, at what point do people say to themselves and the world, I'm a different person? Well, we call that the sign of baptism, where someone says, I now belong to Jesus. Now, I know there are going to be people who don't subscribe to infant baptism, but still the same, what the parents of that child are asserting is that the rules and, and, and methods by which this child will be raised will be according to the covenant that we have in Christ with the Father, which allows us access. So baptism is very important, and yet people just look at it as a thing to do because Jesus said to do it, but they don't understand this is kind of like publicly signing the contract. I remember very distinctly many years ago now when I was a seminary student, one of my professors was lecturing and, you know, being a, a frail human being, I was sort of nodding off and not paying very close attention. But he said something that jolted me straight up out of my seat almost. And it had to do with this very subject that you're referring to. Because he said that in light of what scripture teaches, that baptism is not a sign of a decision that we've made to follow Jesus, which is the way it's presented in many of the same churches that tell you you need to, you know, have a personal save, have a personal relationship with Jesus and get saved and all the rest of it. Because usually the work way it works in those churches, please come forward at the altar call, say the sinner's prayer. You now have Jesus as your personal savior, and now almost literally verbatim, you need to follow him in water baptism. So it's a sign of the decision you've made to follow Jesus. You make this additional decision to get baptized. Well, as my professor noted, and this is what got my attention, according to Scripture, baptism is not a sign of a decision you've made. It's a sign of the decision God has made in choosing you from the foundation of the world to be in Christ, in union with him. Now, in the case of covenant children, that decision is, with a small m, mediated through the parents. Uh, And the very fact that we baptize infants is premised on the fact that they are born into a believing family. That's the promise God made to Abraham. I will be your God and the God of your children. This is not an individualistic, isolated thing. It involves family. So it's, it's very important for people to understand that in 
following Christ and being a part of his kingdom and the message of the kingdom is a message that binds and is proclaimed to people, not just individuals. So this is something that is maybe hard for some people to grasp just because of how deeply ingrained some of these things are. And if you'll permit me, I want to do something I typically do when we have these discussions. I want to quote from R.J. Rushdoony because in his um, uh, in, in the book that in the volumes that were published recently uh, called An Informed Faith, where a number of his position papers and writings were collected, he has an entire section on Pelagianism. And he says this toward the end of that chapter, referring to the Pelagians, he says, they held that man is not free until good and evil, life and death, and all moral decisions are placed in his power as a free agent. Freedom for the Pelagians meant a freedom from God's power to choose or reject God at their own will. And then he said the Enlightenment enthroned Pelagianism in its view of of man's mind, and Arminian revivalism accepted it fully. And he said Arminianism has baptized Pelagianism and made it part of the evangelical scene, and we see the results in an irrelevant church. Amen, brother. Now think about it. We've just gone through a couple of years where people followed mandates because somebody And usually it was an individual said, you must do something. And people did it. They did it because they were concerned of the consequences if they did not. Not everybody did it, but those who did it, usually that was the reason. And yet, if we're going to understand that the Bible clearly says that God is, not like, I wonder if there's a God. No, God is. That's the presupposition we start with, and that Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So those are givens. We're not going to be able to prove those things, but at the point at which Christians feel they either need to coerce or persuade people to this is a sense where they're not a hundred percent sure of the authority. In other words, if God truly is in control of all things, then in theory, someone who asked him into their heart may or may not be part of the elect. And so God's decision prevails. So when we spend a lot of time trying to persuade people to plead with them to, you know, say the prayer or to feel your need, it's not that those things don't happen, but I go back to the scriptures with the people who felt their need and they didn't have to be persuaded I mean, nobody had to tell Zacchaeus to get up into the tree. He got up into the tree because he wanted something. Nobody had to tell the woman with the hemorrhage that she should go through the crowds to just touch him. And so instead of recognizing that the Holy Spirit's call is intense and unable to be resisted, we go into this thing of trying to market Jesus, advertise Jesus, try to persuade people that they need to do this. And as one person said it, if you promise Jesus will make you feel better, and that's why you come, and then you start going through things in life where you don't feel better, well, then I guess that's reason to leave. I really appreciate you bringing this up because this is another major component to the bad influence of atomistic or individualistic thinking as it has perverted and corrupted the kingdom message on many occasions and in many churches. And we see the manifestation of this apart from the areas that I've already mentioned in uh, some aspects of the modern church growth movement. So it's no coincidence 
that those sorts of churches, the, the sort of multi-campus megachurch, again, I, I want to qualify this, not all of them necessarily, but many of them, in my experience at least, they embrace this type of teaching and this type of theology. So if you are knowingly or unknowingly marching to the tune of Pelagius, the whole idea then is that you have the ability within yourself to do good things for God. And so you rely on human ingenuity and techniques and ideas. And you come up th- with things like the power of positive thinking or the purpose-driven church or what all the rest of it. So the, the growth of the church, the expansion of the church, it has everything to do with man's ability, man's ingenuity, uh, trying to come up with ways that will aid the poor Holy Spirit who just can't seem to quite get the job done. I remember many years ago, and this is a true story. I'm not making this up. It's hard to believe, but a fellow seminary graduate of mine, he pastored a church in another city here in South Carolina. He was telling me that there was a church a few miles down the road from his that had moved into an abandoned nightclub. Now, this nightclub had been painted purple. Not sure the reason for that, but it was <laughs> the building was painted purple. And so I don't think that church is there anymore, but I'm not going to call the name of it. But they would run an ad in the little weekly community newspaper. And he told me that on one occasion, they actually ran an ad in which they invited people to come to church. And if they did, they would give them a dollar. Oh, my. This would, I've said that's absolutely true. I looked into it. I didn't believe it myself at first. But I, you see, if your idea is that we have the power within ourselves to generate new Christians, all we got to do is get them within the walls of our building and, you know, sing 500 stanzas of whatever the, the altar call hymn is and get them all emotional and revved up. Then they'll make that decision for Jesus and walk out with their card stamped and their personal savior. And in the meantime, as Dr. Rashtuni so tellingly said it at the end of that chapter, that's a march into irrelevance. I saw an email from someone just recently in which they were lamenting the fact that the children of more recent generations and younger people are just sort of zombie, clueless-like people who don't have any sense of purpose in the world. And maybe if they do have a sense, it's not a very good one. And he was lamenting the fact that, that the church has become largely irrelevant and meaningless to a lot of people. And one reason for that, at least, is what I just read to you from Dr. Rastuni. Now, I think it's important to clarify something. When we say it's not just personal, in other words, the law, the prophets, the gospel of Jesus Christ are objectively true. I don't have to say I believe in the gospel of Matthew for it to be true. In other words, whether or not I believe in it has little to do with the truth of the gospel of Matthew. And so if we recognize that we're entering into something that's objectively true, yes, we experience things subjectively. We all might have been in different points in life, some by social standards much worse than others. So there is a subjective component. However, the subjectivity has to do with how we responded to this objective truth. Now, in the book Dr. Rushduty wrote called The Foundations of Social Order, he spends quite a bit of time discussing the Apostles' Creed. Now, the Apostles' Creed was what adults would normally affirm 
as they would go from being unbelievers to believers outside the covenant into the covenant. And he points out in that book that the pronoun used was I. It wasn't we believe, it's I believe. So there is the component that says this is what an individual needs to believe in order to consider himself or herself a Christian, a believer, a faithful covenant member. Not that we always live up to it, which we know we don't, and that's where we confess our sins. But if you look, and I would encourage people to look at the Apostles' Creed, it's Trinitarian. It says, I believe in the Father, I believe in the Son, I believe in the Holy Ghost. And it makes these assertions. Now, does everybody who accepts Jesus as their personal savior affirm all those things? My guess is they don't even know what they're supposed to affirm. And yet, you know, even if you're going to join a political party, they want you to at least register as that political persuasion or other things that we do. And so we have really cheapened it. And I think that's where the irrelevance comes in. If it's not the selective decision of God as to who's in and who's out, then I guess everybody's in if they want to be. And those who don't want to be, okay, well, they just don't want to be. That book you referred to, The Foundations of Social Order, is one of the most important books that Dr. Rastuni wrote. That is an extremely important point because when people, when individuals in the context of early Christianity when they were asked to declare that creed, that creedal formula, my understanding is is that most of them had to do it publicly. They had to do it in a way that left no doubt in anybody's mind where they stood. It wasn't done in a corner. It wasn't done just within the confines of the Christian uh, family in a small little house church gathering as it probably took place back then. And the reason for that is that by making this declaration, I believe, in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and one God, etc., etc., they were making a declaration that I am being transferred from one family into another. I am leaving one government to come under the authority of a different government. I am under the authority of a, the true king, the true divine king of all creation. So right again, we're right back to the communal aspect of the whole thing. And I believe that I had mentioned this book once before in a previous discussion, and I want to mention it again here and encourage our listeners if they can find a copy of the original 1947 edition of Family and Civilization by the Professor Carl Zimmerman, Z-I-M-M-E-R-M-A-N, of Harvard University back in the day. Dr. Rustuni read this book himself in the early years of his ministry. It's uh, over 800 pages long, and I can only imagine that when he began reading this book, it must have kept him up at night, waiting to get back on to the next chapter, because this thing is absolutely amazing as it chronicles the centrality of the family in the history of all kinds of civilization, that this was built into God's creation ordinance. And so, again, this militates against all the kinds of individualistic, atomistic faith that has been promoted through the various streams of false teachings that have wound their way into our understandings of family, of church, and of civil government. In so many churches, they ask everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes and have somebody put their hand up. Now, I was in one of these churches recently, and a visiting pastor said, 
if you wish to commit your life to Jesus at this point in time, stand up. And I want everyone to look because this person is making a proclamation, which means they need your prayers and support. And I I was beside myself. I thought, now that's the way to do it. If someone's going to make a profession, I mean, of course, I would like the creedal aspect to be there, but it's got to be something where everyone around them knows that's what they're professing. I mean, isn't that what we do when we invite people to weddings? We say, you know, come and witness that we're making these vows to each other. So public professions are important societally, because if everybody just has this personal relationship with the guy that she's living with, but nobody, you know, there's no marriage or whatever, these things can break and there's no communal support to say, wait a second, first you need to establish a covenant and now we're going to assist you in living up to the terms of that covenant. Yes, and that's another um, aspect of covenant that has been present in society for thousands of years, and that is the marriage covenant. And even the very word itself, covenant, implies a community. And then you mentioned earlier how the Apostles' Creed is a Trinitarian creed, and it is, and the Trinity itself is an example of a, a communal relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's important, I think, that folks grasp from our discussion today that at its foundation, the message of the kingdom, the the kingdom message that Jesus proclaimed that was established in the first five chapters of Genesis, the whole aspect of God working in the world that he made is one dealing with a community of believers in covenant with him, not isolated individuals. And yes, we understand that there is a personal component. We are personally required to obey God's law and follow Jesus individually, but that is always within the context of a larger Christian family. Exactly. And, you know, here's an interesting thing that I hadn't thought about until I was listening to one of these freedom rallies that were happening and a rabbi got up and started to talk. Now, the rabbi is not Christian. He's a Jewish rabbi. But he pointed out something that I had never considered before, Charles. What he said was, When the Passover was about to happen, the Hebrew people had already experienced some of the plagues, not all of the plagues. And by not experiencing the latter plagues, they might have had enmity by the political leadership of the day or even neighboring cities or towns. So what were they required to do? They were required to be in their homes, gathering as families, maybe one family or a couple of families. And put the blood on the door. And he pointed out that putting the blood on the door, he says, you know, it's not like the angel was stupid and would only knew who the Hebrews were by the blood on the door because God sent out a blind angel. He said that was a sign for them to make a profession. Now, they really didn't have the rest of the book of Exodus to look back to go, it's all going to work out. Okay. The Red Sea is going to part and we're going to walk through. They had to live and act in faith because it wasn't clearly laid out for them that they could see the road. So that blood on the door is a profession of who they belong to. It's kind of like what you said, there's a new sheriff in town and it's not you, Pharaoh, and we're going to follow what God says because God had shown his power in the various plagues. 
So when people want to have quiet professions and they don't want the world to know, or I don't want people to know where I work or in my neighborhood that I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, the question is why? Who do you believe is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? And if you don't believe it's the Lord Jesus Christ, then I would suggest you go find somebody who can talk these things through because you need a better theology than you've been presented. Yes, and I hope that as uh, people listen to this podcast, they will realize that it is within the larger context of God calling a people to himself as a people, not just simply isolated individuals. And in that passage I referred to earlier in Ephesians, in the second chapter, verse 6, Paul says that we, by God's grace and power, have been raised up together and that he's made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So after the Resurrection Sunday at this point by a few weeks, but the point is the exaltation of Christ by means of his resurrection and eventually his ascension is the exaltation of his people, of humanity, his collective humanity in him. So ours is a communal faith. Ours is a family-based, covenant-based faith. And if we are to remain faithful to what God has called us to be about, then this is what we must embrace and recover. If the early Christians were simply following the type of atomistic thinking that is so common in churches today, they would have never been seen as a threat to the Roman Empire. Well, fine, that guy wants to have Jesus as his personal Savior. That's okay with us. Go over and do that. But no, no, that's not what they were doing. They were loudly proclaiming that I have a different king. I'm part of a different order. I'm a citizen of a different law order. Right. And I think the last couple of years have gotten a lot of people to the point of recognizing their allegiance or lack thereof. And so that's why I'm excited about circumstances that God allows to happen so that people wake up. Different people, you know, some people wake up to a soft alarm. Other people wake up to a loud alarm. Some people need somebody shaking them. So however God does it, I think those of us who get it need to be ready to be the teachers that are required to help make disciples of all nations, not all individuals, nations. Now, of course, nations are made up of communities. They're made up of families and they're made up of individuals. But the goal isn't to go out and convert the individual. It's to disciple the nations. Well, I would just like to wrap up my part of this by uh, one more reference to something that Dr. Rushduni said, referring to the importance of the resurrection. He said, to be given the power to do good by Christ's regenerating work is to be given the power to be victorious, and that the church is, in fact, a victorious church. So we have been saved and brought into God's kingdom for the purpose of victory, and we need to get on with that business. Indeed. So it's not we got to get the right guy into office or we just have to get our side in a position to force other people to do what they don't want to do like they've been forcing us is to recognize the power of the cross and the victory that's ours. Now, how sad is it if a group of people are on the side that won the war but don't know it? Word hasn't gotten to them. Well, listeners, Get the word out and to further your own understanding, let me just 
share again the books we referenced, The Informed Faith, which is a three-volume set of Dr. Rushduni's position papers over the years, and then his book, Foundations of Social Order, that will really go into a lot of the heresies that Charles brought up. Well, thank you, Charles. I'm glad we got a chance to discuss this. Apparently, we both had a lot to say on the subject. <laughs> yes, thank you, Andrew. <laughs> Listeners, you can always reach us at Out of the Question Podcast at gmail.com, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.